Good morning. Good morning. How you doing? She's calling out the fact that I'm wearing a jacket and a collared shirt. You like that? Every once in a while I do that. A pastor told me one time if I wear a jacket every once in a while, the giving will go up. And, uh, and we'll, we'll see if that pastor knows what he's talking about. Uh, I saw a little meme yesterday. Uh, it's a cartoon. And uh, it looks like it's a, like a Sunday school teacher or something playing, or a school teacher playing kind of hangman with the kids. And it has the blanks for the word. And the question is, is who killed uh, Goliath? And it's blank, blank, V-I-D. And the kid said COVID. <laughs> and uh, that, that, that is when you know you have not been to church in a while. And it is a moment to come. And in fact, hey, before we jump in today, can we here at Broken Arrow welcome all those joining us from all the other campuses and online? Uh, Marsha in Illinois and Donna from Florida, we welcome you today. We got friends in Kansas, Texas, California, Missouri, Honduras, Egypt. Welcome today to Battle Creek Church. And uh, we've been talking about giants, and, and we've been for the last two weeks been talking about the giants in your life. We, we even talked about the sleeping giants, and we've been giving you strategies. Uh, from, from David's life on how to fight giants. And next week on, on Mother's Day, uh, we're going to talk about the giant of loneliness. And, and so don't miss next week and, and uh, we'll, we'll do that. But today I want to deal with probably the biggest giant of all. In fact, it's, it is the giant who beat David. Uh, and, and when we look at David, he's a big hero in the Old Testament, a man after God's own heart. He, he was the greatest king and to this day is the most beloved king in the history of Israel. Uh, but like every other character in the Bible, except one, he, he is far from perfect. He, he slew Goliath. He, he conquered rebellion. He took down loneliness. But when, when it comes to this one giant or when it came to this one giant, th this was his weak point And it was the one that actually took him out. And, and, and today what we're going to talk about is the giant of temptation, probably the most deadly and dangerous because we all face this giant. No one is exempt uh, from, from facing temptation. We all face it, uh, quite honestly, sometimes on a daily basis. But, but this giant left alone, if you don't fight it and you don't slay it, it will take everything from you. It will take your family, it will take your home, it will take your life. And some of you have been wondering, in fact, we've received this question a few times in the last few weeks, where does temptation come from? Where, where is that coming from in my life? Is it from the devil? Is it only demonic? Is it part of my flesh? So what I want to do just before we jump in, just to give you a theological lesson for a minute, the, the Bible says that you and I are, are the house of God. The house of God is, is not a building. It's us. We, we, we are the house of God, right? We are the temple of God. And there are all kinds of views on this, by the way. Some people think this is, or we are a dichotomy, two, and, and most think we're a trichotomy, three. I happen to go with trichotomy because I think it's what the Bible says, and, and that we were made in the image of God, and he is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And so I happen to believe uh, the word of God that we are three, spirit, soul, and, and body. The spirit, I've taught you this many times, but it's, this is so crucial for you to understand understand this. The spirit is who we are. 
is who we are, right? We, we are not physical beings with temporary spiritual encounters, that we are spiritual beings with temporary physical experiences. And the part of you that is going to live on forever and ever, either without Jesus in hell or with Jesus in heaven, is your spirit, right? It's your spirit man. You, and, and by the way, your spirit before you come to Christ, this is what we look like before we come to Christ. Your spirit before you come to Christ is possessed by the devil. Possession means ownership. Before you are in relationship with Jesus, he owns you. And it is that your spirit that he resides and owns that. Now, when we look at the soul, clinicians would define the soul with these three words, mind, soul, and emotions. Our mind, our soul, I mean our mind, our will, and emotions is what makes up your soul, okay? And so it's different and distinct from your spirit. Uh, that's where the sin nature resides. When you are born uh, not knowing Christ, when you are born into a world of sin, when you are born uh, after Adam and Eve fell, you, you are born with a sin nature. It's a nature. It's, it's part of who you are. You were born into sin. Flesh is the learned behavior that comes out of the sin nature. And then iniquity, that's passed down from the third and the fourth generations. Not all of us have iniquity. Most of us do probably. Billy Graham said a few years before he died that in the church of Jesus Christ, in the 50s, he would have said maybe three to five percent of the church needed to deal with iniquity, needed to deal with the demonic. And uh, and a year or two before he died, he said, I think it's somewhere around 98 percent today. And so not all of us have that, but it is passed down, right? And so iniquity is that which is passed down. Remember in the second commandment, God said, I will visit the iniquities of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. Now, after you give your life to Jesus Christ, this is what we look like before we give our lives to Jesus Christ. After we give our lives to Jesus Christ, the the devil is kicked out of our spirit and Jesus moves in, right? He is now the possessor of you. You are now possessed by Jesus. You are owned by Jesus. In fact, uh, you're no longer possessed by the devil. You're possessed by God in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, the Holy Spirit has come to dwell within your spirit. It has inhabited you. The person of the Holy Spirit now lives in your spirit and bears witness with your spirit. I personally believe that at that moment, your sin nature is cut away, that you are given a new nature, The old is gone. All is new, right? And and that's what happens to us. The picture of circumcision in the Old Testament is a type and shadow for the New Testament circumcision, which is the circumcision of the heart. And what happens in our heart is he cuts away our sin nature, right? It's gone. And so God cuts it away. That does not mean that we don't have flesh to deal with. Flesh, again, is the learned behavior that comes from having a sin nature. And if you're saved at four or 84, you still have flesh to deal with. You still have flesh to deal with. There are still enemies in the land that you have to contend with and deal with. And if you had iniquity before you were saved, you still may have iniquity after you come to Jesus Christ, and you got to deal with that. Now, turn in your Bible to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, we're going to spend our time in chapters 11 and 12 today. Let's see how much time we have. But but the promised land is, is an illustration, okay? I've been trying to show you this for years and years and years, that the whole Old Testament, The whole journey into the promised land in the Old Testament is a type and a shadow for believers today. 
the, the, uh, there, there's a promised land today for us, the children of God, that we are to take and we are to claim. In the Old Testament, God said to his people, the promised land is yours, right? Israel and all the surrounding areas, it's yours. I made it for you. I have given it to you. I put your name on it, but you still have to go take it. You got to go take possession of it. And the same thing is true for New Testament believers today. The New Testament believers, the promised land, by the way, this, many believers think this, but I don't think it's accurate. That, that the promised land today, the type and shadow for us today, is not heaven. We're not taking over heaven, right? All victory is already won in heaven. The promised land for us today is an overcoming life. It's a life of victory for us today. The promised land of the Old Testament had enemies in it. That's a type and shadow, not of heaven, right? There's no enemies in heaven. Heaven does not have enemies in it. But from, from the position of the spirit man, now where Jesus is owner and the Holy Spirit is dwelling, from that position, that's who we are forever and ever, right? The work is completed in our spirit when he came to save us. We, we, we received the fullness of the Godhead in the person of Jesus Christ. When we gave our lives to Jesus Christ, now the Holy Spirit of God resides within us. Now from that place and from that position and from that beachfront, we go into the soul and we begin to take the land. We begin to go take the territory. We begin to go take it uh, from our uh, flesh and and we begin to take iniquity out and we, we want to work out the salvation that is already done in our spirit, in our soul, in our mind, the way we think in our will, in the decisions we make, and and in our emotions, the way that we feel, right? And so from the Spirit, we go take the soul, and we kick the enemies out. Numbers chapter 33, verse 55, tells us that if you don't drive out the inhabitants of the land, if you don't drive out the inhabitants of the land that are before you, they will become irritants in your eye and a thorn in your flesh. Have you heard those phrases before? That's straight out of Paul in the New Testament. It's a type and shadow. Drive out the inhabitants out of the land. We have inhabitants in our soul, and we got to drive them out. And God has given us the authority to do that. He's given us the victory to do that. And we need to battle those giants in the land and claim it all under the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to spend most of our time there today. Chapter 11 and chapter 12. This is honestly one of the saddest stories in the whole Bible. It's one of the toughest stories to read because David is so respected. And he is so revered. And we read his psalms and we see his heart. But in this story, we find him at his lowest and at his weakest point. And when we read the story, we cringe, right? And those of you who talk back at movies, you're like, don't, David. Stop it, David, right? But but as we read it today, I want you to not just look at David. I want you to turn your eyes inward. And what I want you to do is take a sober look at this giant and realize he wants to take you out too. Chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, when the kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. 
They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. It's important to understand what's happening here. One chapter earlier, the Ammonites and the Arameans are fighting together against Israel. The battle is basically at a stalemate until David arrives on the scene. He defeats the Arameans. He, he, he chases the Ammonites out. Now what he's doing is sending Joab, the leader of his army, to go fight the Ammonites. Now what does David do? Look at the next phrase in the scripture. David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Circle that in your Bible and pay attention here. David had just had some of the greatest success he ever encountered as king. His army was stronger than all the armies of all of his foes. He had killed giants. He was training his men to kill giants. In fact, he is mopping up the floor and kicking out all of the old enemies. He's doing God's will. But it is at that moment, right after success, that temptation often comes. Make no mistake about it. That's the M.O. of the enemy. Look look, look at verse 2. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, you know nothing good comes after a midday rest. (laughs) Sometimes I get on planes and people are falling asleep and domestic flights and here and there. And I'm like, what are you doing? It's the middle of the day. Will you sleep on a plane? I just want to hand out assignments. Like, would you read this for me? Proof this for me? I'm working on this sermon. Tell me what you think. I just want to just hand it out to all these people going to go to sleep in the middle of the day. (laughs) David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. He looked out over the city. He noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. I don't believe this was a mistake. I think he knew. I think he had seen her before. I I think he knew that she would be there at that time. And here's what I believe. He put himself in the path of temptation. And so many times what we are guilty of doing is placing ourselves at the door of temptation or sticking our toe in the pool of temptation, wanting just to peek, wanting just to taste. It's a trap. It's a trap, it's a trap, it's a trap. Look look, look at the next verse. He sent someone to find out who she was. And and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, why on earth did he mention those two names in in, in this book of Scripture? Well, you do a, a quick search, an ancillary search. Here's what you find. It's striking, actually. 2 Samuel 23, 1 Chronicles 11, list the list called the list of David's mighty men. David's personal bodyguards. And in that list, Uriah and Eliam are listed. They are his mighty men. They are his closest friends. They are his most loyal subjects. He should have heard those names and said, whoa, 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 whoa. These are my friends. These are my trusted servants. These are my troops. They have saved my life. I am not going there. But David sent messages to get her. Messengers. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I am pregnant. Now, I'm not going to give you a biology lesson today, but, but I, I, you, you need to understand this. Bathsheba, according to this scripture, in order to get pregnant, this went on for a couple of weeks. This was not a drive-by. It was not a one-night stand. He he dove into this scent. 
And, and, and as we read this story, I want to show you something that I call the, the spiral of sin, the spiral of sin. This is different than the cycle of repentance that we've talked about many times in the Old Testament. That's where the children of God rebel and, and uh, are punished and, and then uh, repent and are forgiven only to rebel again, right? And, and the cycle goes on and on. This is different than the cycle of sin. This is the spiral of sin. And what you see in the spiral of sin is things get worse and worse and worse. And the, the spiral of sin, write this down if you will, the spiral of sin begins with temptation. That's the first step. David placed himself in the path of temptation willingly, but make no mistake about it. We can try to avoid temptation and we should avoid temptation, but, but you are going to be tempted all of us are tempted. Remember where temptation comes from. In fact, hold your finger right here in Samuel. Flip over to James, because James talks about this perfectly in chapter 1. Uh, look at it together. Let's see where, yeah, verse 13. Remember, <clears throat> when you are being tempted, not if, when. Do not say, God is tempting me. God, never tempted, God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Never. You, you can never say with accuracy or truth, God is tempting me. That is not true. Look, look at verse 14. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. This is the spiral of sin here. It starts with temptation, but it does not end with temptation. T temptation starts with desires and impulses, right? And remember we said last week that desires are not sin. They're not bad. God, God has given them to you, right? When I talk to my boys about uh, purity and, and uh, temptation and lust and all of those things that come with it, I, I always am careful to separate the, the biology from the spiritual side of it, right? That, that, that This is not something dirty, filthy, and nasty. This is something beautiful and amazing that God has wired you for, but it is to happen within the confines of your marriage one day. You don't walk in shame related to sexuality. God created it. It is a wonderful thing, right? That, so the desire is not bad. God put the desire in you. But when you take the desire and you try to meet it independent of God in a way that is not godly, it leads to sin. And we all have the propensity towards a certain sin. And, and you should know what it is, by the way. And temptation is not a sin. Being tempted is not a character flaw. It is acting upon that sinful impulse that, that is a sin. The scheming is a sin. The plotting is a sin that, that David is doing in this text. Listen, when we act on that temptation, we give into the second step in this spiral, which is sin. In James, we saw that uh, we are enticed and drug away, right, by our desires. Drug away, dragged away. What, what, I don't remember what, I don't know what, drug away. both. You know what those terms are? Those are fishing terms. It's the fishing terms. It's like getting a fish on a hook. Our own desires through, through temptation cause us to want what's on that hook. But, but when we act on it and bite down on it, now, now we are involved in sin. There is a moment during temptation and I don't know when it is exactly, theologically or biblically, but there is a moment during sin when we give in and we bite down that we, we are almost guaranteed at that point to give in to those desires. 
There is always a way out, according to Jesus, right? And in the first moment, it's like a barn door, but it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller to the point that it becomes like a mouse hole, right? And what happens when we sin, there are plenty of consequences when we sin. For David, it was that Bathsheba was pregnant. For you, it may be different, right? But make no mistake, there are consequences to sin. That's the third step in this spiral. There are consequences. And if you're caught speeding, you're probably going to get a ticket. If you're caught stealing, there is a penalty, right? If you're caught in the act of murder, you have to answer for it. Maybe the death penalty. But not all sins lead to the police standing outside your front door. But mark this down. Even if you're not caught by the authorities, you are caught when you sin by the hook of temptation. You have taken it. It's just like the leader on that fishing line. That fish doesn't know he's caught initially. It's when that fisherman, bam, sets that hook into the mouth of the fish that the real struggle begins. But at that point, it's too late because you're caught. And and some sins seem so simple, but the consequences are so light. You you think, I I lied once and I got away with it. I did it. I'm okay with it. I'm free from it. But the consequences may not show themselves till later. But every sin has a consequence because the goal of the enemy is to get us to sin. And in sinning, we will be hooked, dragged away like a dead fish. The enemy comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And sin is such that there are consequences, but they they will always lead us down a dead-end road. The the spiral of sin has a vacuum in it, 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 a sucking effect to it, right? It will suck you in, and and it leads to death. Look what happened to David. Go, Go back to this story. Look what happened to David. Then David sent word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. Verse 8. Then he told Uriah, go home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. What is David doing here? He's hoping Uriah will go home for Touch time with his wife. Remember that series? That's what he's hoping. He, he's schemed that if he can just get Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba, all of his problems will go away. Vanished and, and covered up. But even if that happened, listen, David is still hooked by temptation. He's still heading down this spiral of sin. David is trying to cover up his sins. He, he, he calls the very person he sinned against, and instead of confessing and asking for forgiveness, he pretends to have his best interest at heart. But really, David has his own interest at heart. And he sends this guy home and even sends him a gift. He's trying to make up for it, but in his own way, not in God's way. But, but he's also trying to cover up his sins. He, he's not looking... Uh, in the one place that he could find a true cleansing and a a true washing. He's not considering God at all in in, in these plans. Now, what what, what happens to David's big plans? You you know the story, right? Look look at verse 9. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. You, You see the irony here? David should have been out in the field. And he's, his soldier is sleeping on the porch or sleeping with the soldiers. He, David should have been the one sleeping with the palace guard. But, but he didn't. David called Uriah before him, asked him, why aren't you going home to your wife? Uriah says that he can't, not with the rest of his army out fighting. 
And you can just see David's heart breaking at this moment. I, I should have been the one out there fighting. And I'm covering up an affair. My man is more righteous than me. And just before you think it's about to get better and David's going to confess and, and, and make amends to take care of the situation, it actually only gets worse, which is what happens in this spiral. Temptation leads to sin, and sin has its consequences, and the consequences made him desperate. And desperation, where does that lead? It only leads to more sin. That's Romans chapter 1. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. What, what, what's the punishment for sin? It's more sin. God abandoned them over to their sins. The punishment for sin is more sin. Do, do you see it here as it plays out? You're in sin. You felt the consequences. Now you're desperate. Now you have a choice to make, and there has to be a fork in the road. Do you repent, or do you cover it up? If you cover it up, it will only result in more sin. You go on, by the way. This is your homework assignment. Go ahead and read the rest of chapter 1 this week. Not right now. I'm preaching. But, but, but read it this week, right? And, and you'll see something. This thing gets worse and worse and worse and worse. The spiral of sin goes down and down and down. And here's what happens as it goes down and down. It gets faster and faster and faster. And what does David do? He tries to let Uriah go home and sleep with Bathsheba, but it doesn't work. He invites him in for a great feast. He tries to get him drunk and then sends him home. Uriah sleeps on the couch over and over and over. David is getting desperate. He's going faster and faster and faster into sin until he decides there's only one way out. And he sends Uriah back to the front lines with a letter from Joab. And the letter says, Joab, put Uriah on the front lines and then pull back from him. Put him where the fighting is the fiercest and then pull back and let him get killed. David sanctioned a man's death because he was unwilling to face his consequences. But it all started when he was unwilling and unable to fight the giant of temptation. We've said it many times before. Sin will cost you more than you want to pay. It will take you further than you want to go. And it will keep you longer than you want to stay. That's the spiral of sin. He went further and further and further into it. He, he used sin to cover up more sin. And, and God gave him over to his desires, and it eventually led to death. When you read the whole story, the consequences of his actions are magnificent. I mean, they're huge. Lies and murder. Other soldiers died. A nation was affected. Increased violence in the kingdom. His son with Bathsheba dies, and then his household rebels, right? It's now generational iniquity upon the household of David. <clears throat> death upon death upon death. When, when David gave in to the giant of temptation, many people lost. So, so you see how it went with David. Do, do you want that in your life? Or, or, or do you want uh, Satan to kick your tail? You want to get sucked into the spiral of sin? Let, 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 me, let me give you three surefire ways for that to be your path. Three ways to ensure defeat, if that's what you're looking for. Number one, neglect God's purpose in your life. <clears throat> go all the way back to verse 1. In the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war. That's what David was supposed to be doing, but he didn't. He stayed home. <clears throat> Instead of following the Lord, 
He did what he wanted to do. And, and instead of putting God's desires above all else, he, he desired his plan above God's plan. So, so you want to face defeat in your life, ignore God's calling on your life. Ignore God's purpose on your life. Don't find your identity in God and who he made you to be. Find it in something else. Look all around you with a jealous eye at your neighbor's success. Think about all the things that you haven't been called to do, but think about those things. Focus all of your energy on what others have been designed to do. Ignore completely the way that God wired you and the way he made you. By all means, don't find your identity in Christ. Don't try to cultivate that calling and that purpose either, because if you do, you might find fulfillment and satisfaction. But if that's not what you're looking for, don't do that at all. Listen, it's only by taking our eyes off of how God designed us that can leave us in the place dissatisfied, discontent, and bored. I sense the Holy Spirit speaking to somebody right now. Dissatisfied, discontent, and bored in the kingdom of God means you have taken your eyes off of how God designed you. And just like David, you will find yourself wandering the housetops looking for trouble. Don't attempt to glorify God in all you do if you want defeat. But, but because you'll find your desires change when you want to glorify God. Instead of being selfish and self-centered, you'll end up being God-glorifying and others-oriented, and you won't give the enemy a foothold in your life if that's the path you go down. But, but, but if you do ask the question, how does this glorify God? You'll find yourself focusing on God and his desires instead of your own. So if you want to fail, re- rehearse it over and over and over in your mind. Focus on the giant, which is the next way, by the way, to ensure defeat in your life is focus on your giant. You may say, wait, 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 Pastor Alex. We've been talking about giants. Listen, in order to beat my giant, I have to face it and I have to focus on it. No, you don't. Go back and read it. David didn't focus on Goliath. He looked past Goliath to God. you, You look past your giant to the God who is much bigger than the giant. All of a sudden, the giant looks small in comparison to who God is. His God was bigger than either of them, and he would give them victory. You want to beat that temptation, quit focusing all your attention on it. You you can't sit here and go, I won't, I won't, I won't, I won't, and not. If your focus is, I won't, I won't, I won't, you will. You have to put your focus on God. If you want to beat temptation, listen to me, you put your focus on God. Look at verse 2. And as he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. I think David went to that rooftop often. I've been there. And I bet probably he saw the bath down below, but it was empty, and he started to plot and scheme. He went up at morning, nothing. Late at night, nothing. But then after a mid-afternoon nap, he he went up and saw her. And he didn't just see her, he planned it out. He, He gave in to the desires. He saw her and wanted her and planned to get her alone. No self-control at all in this scenario. L- listen, if you have a strong life of discipline and self-control, you, you're not looking for temptation everywhere. 
You're not trying to feed those desires and that lust. Listen, you won't be giving into temptations and seeking more and more and more and more temptations. You won't, give up, you won't be giving up on any notion of spiritual maturity either or, or spiritual growth. But as soon as you find yourself in the spiral of sin, spinning out of control, th- th- this is the temptation and this is the step where the hook gets set. Remove accountability from your life. Look, look, look at verse 1 again. David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. David stayed behind all alone. And he isolated himself. Joab, his most entrusted uh, advisor, leader of his army, the Israelite army. No, no, the other translations say it was his mighty men. This is not just his army. This is his specific uh, uh, bodyguards, the best of the best. This is the special forces. They are the ones that he fought alongside with, side by side in every single battle. And now he's isolating himself, keeping himself all alone. You want to make sure that you're defeated. Isolate yourself from those who care about you. Instead of insulating yourself with godly friends who who can help you, build a life of shame. Build a life of regret, one that rejects others and wants to be all alone. The demonic attack will come to you. And it comes when you least expect it. David, it it came to him after the victory. And what the enemy wants to do is get you in the open field. He wants to get you in the open field and to put you out where you think you're safe. And then he wants to attack you at that moment. You've seen the National Geographic videos and the wildlife videos where the lions come and they separate the herd from the baby. They separate the herd from the sick one. Listen, he is mean, mean, mean. And he wants to get you all alone. We were trying to think of a way to uh, illustrate this for you, that that this this thing represents your life and the temptation and the sin running into you. This this balloon represents you and and, uh, who you are. And and there's temptation coming. We cannot avoid that, right? As best we try, there's some coming into our lives. But, But this, God's purpose for your life is a major outlet. It's, a, it's an outlet where you feel used by God. It's an outlet where you feel anointed by God. And, and in the morning sometimes, I, I, on Sunday mornings, I struggle. I mean, 6 a.m. all the way to 9 a.m., I'm struggling. I'm struggling, I'm struggling. Sometimes the coffee has to carry me until the anointing kicks in. But when I get on this stage and I do God's purpose in my life, there, there's an outlet to these things. But, but when we uh, uh, focus on the giant instead of on God, it, th- then we cut that valve off and it runs into our lives. But when we focus on God, it's an outlet to the stresses of our life. It's an outlet to the temptation uh, of our lives. When we remove accountability, w- then we allow this to come into our lives. But when we have accountability, there's an outlet. We are, we're staying clean. We're walking with small baggage in, in our lives. But, but the moment we come back to this place and we ignore God's purpose in our life, it, it begins to flow hard and heavy into our lives. And, and at the point where we, we focus on the giant instead of on God, now it's running into our lives. And at the moment that we bite the hook and we remove the accountability from our lives, then, then it is running into our lives over and over and over to the point that the spiral of sin is a big, big, big deal in our lives. And some of us can handle it for a long time, which is ruining my illustration, but some of us can't handle it at all. I want you to think about that. 
He's coming after you. And if it's not enough in your heart and your mind, for, for that to be enough reason for you to do the war and to do the battle, to take the giant down, m- maybe this will motivate you. He's not just coming after you. He wants to hook you so that he can take your children and their children and their children. This is a big, big deal. And and he comes at you with flaming arrows. Remember, it's a war of words. He comes at you with lies. Go ahead, try it. You'll like it. You you deserve this. This will feel good, right? But, But all of these are just arrows from the city of temptation. And the enemy is on the hunt to steal from you, to kill you, and to devour you. And the only way he can win is for you to give in to the temptation. You remember in Revelation where it says that we win this thing by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony? Uh, This week, I heard two testimonies, and and these are not old testimonies. These are fresh testimonies that that, that I just heard. And and, and I I was thinking this week, what what do we need in this place? We need to share some testimony with you. So I want to introduce you to two of my friends. This is uh, Bill Hauser and and, uh, Gage Johnson. Bill is a retired pastor who's a part of our church, been here almost five years. And, And he's a constant source of encouragement to me. He's a constant source of prayer. On many occasions, I have thought, on the day where I move to the retirement stage of life, I, I want to be like that. I want to be a pastor in a church who is encouraging the pastor, who is praying for the pastor, who, who, who has a, a, a gift of encouragement and is a constant on his face before God praying. Gage is in my community group. Gage's wife, Karis, I've known her since she was a baby. That's what happens when you stay around a while. You get, you get to serve alongside the people that were babies. And they're in our community group now. And uh, every once in a while, jokingly, I'll say, shut up, you're a baby. You don't know what you're talking about. But Gage is brilliant. And I've known that for a long time. Uh, but but uh, I didn't know what a gift of writing that, that he had. In fact, last week in our community group, Gage asked in a vulnerable way, could, could I read an entry from my journal that the Holy Spirit, I believe, wrote through me and was speaking to me related to giants in, in my life. And I was so blown out of the water by how gifted of a writing, writer the Holy Spirit is in him and through him that, that I, I just asked him, will, will you come and read that? And I know it's going to be vulnerable, but I want you to read it to thousands and thousands of people and I want you to share your testimony of what God is doing in your life. So, Gage, would you just read an entry from your journal? A quilt. A heavy, threadbare covering was once laid upon me. I remember neither a day out from its darkness nor the day I first felt its weight. I can only recall its covering as part of me, growing day upon day and stitch upon stitch. I came to delight in its false warmth, and lies of protection. Indulging in my iniquity, I would turn within, insulating myself in a hiding without sanctuary. This liar's mantle shackled itself to me fully, whispering that only he could hide my wrongs and cover up my guilt. Feeling bare, I pulled on layer after layer. Another voice is called, a voice that is true and right, gentle enough to call me from hiding, yet powerful enough to shake the cave's depths Today I ripped my blanket of shame from my shoulders. Weightless, I stand fully before my king, 
The voice took the wads of blanket cotton from my ears and sang its proclamation of truth. Where once I was layered in shame, I now wholly cover myself in blood, the blood of him who gave everything for my freedom from guilt and shame forever. Amen. Uh, I, I would buy that in a book. And, and not only would I buy it, I would underline it, I would highlight it, and then I would try to use it in a sermon. And, and God is writing a story in, 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 his, in his heart. How, how did you come to know shame was the issue you're dealing with? Okay. So shame, uh, there's really no area of my life, looking back, that I, I can't see shame touching. Uh, from the way that I communicated with my family growing up and my family now uh, to the way uh, that I would make decisions in my life. Uh, I, would, I would make them from shame. Uh, or even uh, after I would finish a meal, I would feel, feel shame in those things. Um, and really, uh, I started to realize it was a, a bigger issue uh, when I started to deal with some of the sin in my life. And I would eliminate a sin, uh, but that shame would still be there for it. Wow. And, uh, and then I would feel shame over that and return to my sin. And then shame over the sin that I returned to and just this endless cycle. It's a spiral. Yeah. How, how did you come to this place where seeing your identity in Christ it is the tool in which you overcome this and take that off. Yeah, the, that question is actually uh, is very ironic for me because that's one of the areas that shame attacked me so hard. Uh, I can in your identity. In my, in my identity yeah. in Christ, uh, that my, my shame. I can remember as, uh, as a kid, as a teenager, I, I'd been following Jesus for years, uh, but there would be an altar call at a revival or at a youth event, and uh, my shame would be sitting next to me saying, that's for you. Even though I'd been following Jesus, he'd say, that's for you. But at the same time, but you can't go down there because then everyone will think, haven't you been following Jesus? Mm -hmm. um, but just like uh, the, the words that the Holy Spirit gave me, uh, it, it's really just taking, uh, you know, taking those wads of cotton out of your ears and uh, that deafening uh, roar that shame would have in my ears and allowing uh, the true and right voice uh, to speak to me. Gives new meaning to Shema, mm, yes. to listen right? To listen to the voice of God. And, and so what does that look like walking out for you, walking mm -hmm. that out in victory? Yeah. Uh, so as, as I continue uh, to, to do that, as I continue to, to rip shame uh, from my shoulders, it's having faith uh, that uh, I have a God that will not allow shame to continue in my life. Yeah. Uh, and, and filling my mind, filling my heart with the scriptures and meditating on them a day yeah. and night. Yeah. Bill, uh, has shared some stories with me, and one of them was when he was pastoring a church, had small children, and, and then at that moment, there was a wake-up call where he realized his children were afraid of him. T tell us a little bit about that. Yes, I, uh, I had been in ministry about 12 years and about three years as a senior pastor already when this occurred in my life, and I began to be aware that in my interaction with my children that they were afraid of me. And uh, that wasn't the relationship I wanted with them. So as I began to look at this, I began to see that it was expressions of my anger and dumping verbal abuse upon them that had created this fear. And so I began to talk to the Lord about this because I didn't want to be this way. I wanted a different relationship with my kids. And uh, if for the next, oh, 
three or four months, if anything, it, this got worse because I would get more angry at myself after the fact because I didn't want to be this way. And so one day I, in desperation and frustration, I said to the Lord, you promised to help me and nothing is changing here. And his response to me was, well, the real problem isn't the yelling and screaming, the verbal abuse. And I said, well, Lord, then I don't understand. You're going to have to show me. What did he tell you that was the problem? He began to show me how selfish I was. The anger was stimulated by my being distracted from what I was doing by my kids and, uh, in essence, resenting that. And the second thing he showed me was that this was learned behavior. I had learned this from my father. Uh, he was a godly man, but this was the way he interacted with me. And I resented that. I had told my siblings, I'm never going to be like that. And I was holding unforgiveness in my heart. And the unforgiveness was producing the same thing in me that I hated. And uh, let, me, let me dive there for one second. Yeah. That the sin committed against you by your father created a sin in you of unforgiveness. Mm-hmm. I don't want you to miss this. That, that it wasn't his sin that started this process. It was his father's. And again, his father was trying to walk with the Lord and loving the Lord, but all of us wound our children. All of us. Mm-hmm. I am a great dad, but, but I have wounded my kids and, 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 and will again. And we, we try to deal with this and we try to acknowledge this and we try to walk through this. But, but it, the sin of a great dad in your life created a sin in your life, which was the sin of a different, but of unforgiveness, which spiraled you into the very point where you were committing the very same sin that your dad had committed. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So anyway, now I get to confess my sin, the selfishness, the unforgiveness before God and it, it was just a, a matter of weeks. God so changed me yeah. that this behavior is totally gone. My, old, my son was saying to his mom, Mom, Dad has sure changed. Wow. It was that instantaneous and drastic. But it wasn't working on it and working on it. It, it, it was ripping it out at the root, confessing it, and yes. let, letting God have it. Yeah. When, right. when I tried to change the behavior, it got worse. Yeah. But when I totally gave it to the Lord, he totally cleansed and took it away. There's two testimonies in in my life this last week. Would you thank them for coming and sharing today? Thank you, gentlemen. Let let me me just say this before I move on. You you may have a story, and and we want to know about it. I, I think one of the things that in the early years of the church that we did really, really well that as the church grew numerically, became increasingly more and more difficult, is telling the stories of what God is doing in the lives of our people. And we're committed to that. And we want to work on that process. Every week, Meredith tells me about seven or eight stories at lunch on Sunday because she's in advance track. And so she's hearing the stories of life change and hearing the stories of God's miraculous work. And the next day I'll come, I'll come to the office and I'll be like, hey, uh, just stories after stories. And the staff will be like, hey, well, tell me. So I'm like, I can't remember any. 
Like I heard too many to actually remember one. Maybe one will come. If you'll just start talking, maybe something will trigger my mind. There'll be something because I'm not writing them down. But, but, but we need to write them down. And, and we need to find a way to share them on a regular basis. And so if you have a story of what God is doing in your life, and, uh, send, send me an email. We, we created a whole email address called tellalex at battlecreekchurch.com. It is for stories of encouragement. Let me tell you what it's not. I don't even have to say it. That spirit of criticism on you, the devil, listen, get it out. Deal with your giant. Don't send it my way. But if you got a story, if you got a story of what God's doing, we want to share it with with the body of Christ. I want to lead you in, in, in a prayer. Okay, would you just, just as we've been doing, we've been taking ground one step after the other. Would you just hold your hands like this, every campus, just in in, in your lap. And and I want to lead you in the prayer, okay? And again, there's no magic in the words of these things. The magic is the authority that you have, that you have in, in the spiritual world and in the heavenlies as a child of God. Do not walk in that shame. Do not walk in that unforgiveness. Do not walk in those things that keep you from knowing who you are in Christ. So take the authority you have right now and just say, Heavenly Father, thank you for your great love for me. Thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to guide me. Thank you for who you are in my life. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for revealing the things in me that are not from you. Continue to show me the areas of my life that are giants. That are trying to enslave me. Father, I confess any unforgiveness and sin that I've held on to. Show me the roots of the sins and iniquities that have held me back. Help me repent and turn from them. God, I ask you for heart change in me. True repentance. Please take my heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh. Thank you, Heavenly Father that no temptation has or will come to me, that you will not provide a way out. Thank you, Jesus, for resisting temptation and your finished work on the cross for me, giving me as a child of God the authority to bind the enemy, defeating his attempts in and on my life, and my family's life. Thank you that I am a new creation in Christ. I don't have to live in shame or condemnation anymore. God, I ask that you bind any spirit of shame, any spirit of despair or unbelief or fear. I cast out every fear And everything in my life, not from you, with the authority you have given me by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
I place instead the word of God in my heart, in my mind, and in my life. I declare, as you have said in your word, no weapon formed against me shall prosper. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Thank you that you are faithful, God, to finish the work you've begun in me. Thank you for the victory that I have today. In Jesus' name we pray. And together we all say amen and amen. Would you thank the Lord today for this victory?